This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate all the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture. And by the way, while you're here, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it really helps people find the show. So let's get to it. We have an excellent guest with us this week, award-winning author Cambria Gordon, who has a terrific new novel out this February, and we're going to talk to her about having to hide who you are. Now, we've just started talking about the book of Exodus, you know, the classic story of how God sent Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. It's possibly the most famous story, certainly in the Western canon and probably in the history of literature. And of course, if you think about the story for even two seconds, you'll probably reach the same conclusion as most people from ancient commentators to Hollywood execs, which is that the book of Exodus is all about redemption. It's about leaving captivity, escaping from exile. So that's why I've always found it so strange, in the best way, that Nachmanides, who's one of the most famous biblical commentators and sages from the medieval period, he writes in his introduction to the book of Exodus that even after the Hebrews are taken out of Egypt, they're still considered to be enslaved. And it wasn't until they actually receive the Ten Commandments, you know, Charlton Heston at Mount Sinai, that they're considered to have been redeemed and freed from slavery. I mean, I don't get it. Once the Israelites throw off their chains and escape from Egypt, why would we consider them to be still enslaved? And I think the answer is clear. Even though the Israelites had been taken out of Egypt, Egypt had not yet been taken out of them. So remember, if you're a Hebrew slave in Egypt... You had no identity of your own. You were at the mercy of every single whim and fancy of your Egyptian master. You certainly couldn't act too religious or Jewish or be too bearded or traditional or anything. You couldn't act the way you wanted to, the way you believe your parents or God expected you to, out of fear for how the powerful in society might treat you as a result. And it wasn't until the Israelites received the Ten Commandments, embraced their identity as a values-driven people, as a unique nation with a unique purpose all their own, that they could truly feel and be free. And as we think about the state of American discourse today, it all too often seems like as much freedom as we may have in a formal sense, we're still in some ways stuck in Egypt. I mean, consider this, according to a new Cato National Survey from this summer, 62%, just under a full two-thirds of Americans, both left, right, and center, are too afraid to ever express their political beliefs in public. We've become so deathly afraid of our fellow citizens that not only can we not have real conversations with each other, we can't have any conversations with each other at all. And that's a worrying sign of a society that may be physically free, but emotionally and culturally, spiritually, is still in captivity. And if we're going to avoid or escape becoming entrapped by our own fear of each other, the only way will be to rediscover a sense of renewed purpose as a nation. We'll need to remember our core values, what actually makes us a country worth caring about. In short, we'll need to remember who we are. And to talk about all this, how to cope with the fear of showing others who we truly are, and maybe, just maybe, discovering the confidence to live our values proudly and honestly, I brought on the brilliant, award-winning writer 
and author of the upcoming novel, The Poetry of Secrets, Cambria Gordon. Cambria, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Ari. Great to be here. So, Cambria, you've written an incredible book set during the Spanish Inquisition in the 15th century of all time. So can you tell us a little bit about why that period, why the Spanish Inquisition is is important and interesting to you? You know, I have to confess, I grew up in Los Angeles and I did not learn about the Inquisition in school. I don't know why. And when my family and I, uh, my husband and our youngest son, we moved to Spain for a year and being Jews, I tried to find my people. <laughs> when That's I how we roll. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? Um, so I became friends with a, a dear friend, an American woman who married a Spaniard, and she's Jewish. And so she brought me to a temple in Madrid. It's a Masorti uh, sect. And um, it was interesting because the rabbi was Ashkenazi from Argentina, and all the members were transplants. There were no native Spaniards in this congregation. And I thought, that's strange. I, I always assumed that the Sephardic community was this vibrant place in Spain. And I came to realize, no, in fact, the Jewish communities in these in these cities in Spain are, are new arrivals. And when we were traveling to various cities like Toledo and um, Girona and Segovia, I would look on the ground and there were demarcations of the Jewish quarters. This was put in recently by by Jewish groups who decided that tourism, it would attract Jewish tourists to come and see where the Jews used to live in these towns. But that was it. It was only these little shamas on the ground to signify the Sephardi. And that I thought, well, I need more. I, I, what happened to all these Jews? Why were, were they, are they gone? Where are the remnants? And so I started reading a lot of nonfiction and fiction in Spain. I mean, in English, but I ordered them in Spain, all these books when we were there. And I just dragged my family to every Jewish quarter we could find because I had this insatiable curiosity of what happened and why was, was there nobody left. So that's what began my, my intrigue and, and curiosity with the Inquisition. So you kind of weave this amazing story about a young Jewish woman who's kind of caught in the grips of the Inquisition, right? So the Inquisition, you know, is this institution for strengthening the Catholic Church that spans the whole of Europe, really, and it predates the Spanish version of it. But in Spain, it took on this particularly um, politically motivated and brutal character where, where Jewish identity is really forcibly either suppressed or transmuted into something else. And you, you know, tell the story of a young woman caught in this. So can you kind of give us a sense of what are the stakes? You know, who who is the main character and 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 you know, what's the kind of story you're trying to get across? So Isabel, my protagonist, is a 16-year-old girl who has been living outwardly as a Christian. Her family has been baptized. Both her parents and her grandmother were born Jewish and then immediately baptized for survival. So I do tell a little bit of the history of how that began, which we won't get into yet, but I'll just go back to Isabel. So they are what's called new Christians. And they're the old Christians are the ones who have always been Catholic in, in Spain. The new Christians would either be converts from Judaism or from, from Islam. So they were Moranos and they were and they were Moriscos. 
Right? And these are people who are sort of living outwardly as Christians, but living outwardly but as Christians, Muslims who converted were Moriscos and Jews who converted were Moranos. And then there were also um, Jews. There were Jews who chose not to convert, who, who lived isolated and together in the Jewish quarter, who were slowly getting their rights um, diminished, similar to the Nuremberg Laws. Restrictions on careers, restrictions on who they can um, socialize with, um, how they can wear their hair, you know, all sorts of restrictions, wearing a badge. And then Isabel's family, they are secretly practicing their Judaism and they are called crypto Jews. And they still want to maintain their Shabbats. They want to say the blessings. They want to celebrate Sukkot. They have their old friends who are Jewish. They've never lost those friends, but they wanted to assimilate into society. So they go to church on Sunday, but on Friday nights, they have Shabbat in the cellar. And that is the setup of the book in the beginning. And this is a common phenomenon. I mean, this, is, this isn't like an, a narrative invention. This is something that happens. This happened. This happened. There were many Jews who embraced Christianity and became full, you know, very, very uh, fervent practitioners, and some became priests. There were people that never looked back, and there were people like Isabel Perez's family who stayed as crypto-Jews. And then there were the um, the Jews who ultimately during when the expulsion happened in 1492, it was the obvious Jews that were kicked out. It was not the converts. Um, my book takes place 15 years before 1492. And by the time everyone was kicked out, even the ones who had intermarried, who had married old Christians, many of them chose to leave as well because there was suspicion everywhere. I think, again, what you were saying earlier is so fascinating. You know, you know, many Jews grow up sort of learning about the Spanish Inquisition as a signal event in Jewish history, right? Because the Jews are expelled from Spain in 1492. But, you know, it's so fascinating. I, I often encounter friends of mine and, and, uh, and, you know, lots of people who either they don't know a lot about the Spanish Inquisition at all, or they don't know about the effect it had on the Jewish community. I mean, the punishment, for example, for being discovered, if you were a crypto Jew, so you're sort of a secretly practicing Jew, the punishment for being discovered was you burnt at the stake. I mean, this was a serious, this is quite a serious matter. Correct. This, as I understand it, is what the the protagonists in your story are dealing, are confronting, Right. Right. I mean, the, it was the crime of Judaizing. It's literally a gerund, a J-U-D-A-I-Z-I-N-G. I, I was so shocked to see that in all my research. And if you were caught Judaizing, which was considered a backslide, because they, they only, at this time, they were only looking at the conversos. Obviously, if you were had remained a Jew, you, didn't, you weren't Judaizing, because that was how you always were. So the conversos if they lit a, lit a candle to pray for a sick family member that was considered Judaizing, if they lit, if they paid a Jew to light a candle for them in the synagogue, if they visited a Jew's home and sat in the sukkah, if they did not cook their meal on Friday night, if they observed the Sabbath, if they were seen as dressing up and looking too nice on Friday night, if they refused to eat pork in the taberna, which is the tavern. I mean, this was evidence of what the inquisitors felt was Judaizing. So here's how I think about how the Spanish Inquisition can help us think about the challenges of contemporary America. So, you know, there's the obvious, maybe too obvious way in which we can think about, you know, like 
cancel culture or the increasingly, you know, authoritarian nature of some of our elite institutions. But again, the analogy isn't great because, you know, the Inquisition was literally burning people at the stake. Um, But I, I think there's a much more subtle way in which the comparison is actually really crucial. And that is, if you think about the Inquisition from the Jewish perspective, you have this whole generation and then subsequently multiple generations of people who just became totally cut off from their traditions. And this has disastrous consequences. And I think it's actually a much closer analogy to what's going on in our society today, where if you're in the founding generation or if you're Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass, so you know well and you say explicitly that the American Republic, the American experiment is sustained by a deep knowledge of the, you know, the West's moral traditions, which were rooted in the Bible. And like, even if you weren't a believer, as some in the founding generation weren't, right? So no self-respecting American would not have read the King James Bible, even just as great literature. And then there's also sort of a reverence for and familiarity with our civic traditions like the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, which, you know, the historian Pauline Meyer has this great book where she describes the Declaration as American scripture. And today, younger generations, as the public survey data shows, millennials and Gen Z, are increasingly cut off from those sources of inspiration. So biblical literacy has plummeted. Engagement with our civic classics has dropped precipitously. And so you can almost think of these younger generations as like crypto-Americans, right? Like they're just as motivated to be good and virtuous as their ancestors. That's not the problem. The problem is that they're cut off from their roots, from their tradition. So how do we cope with this problem in today's America? That's the the question that I think I think Judaism is suffering. You know, I'm I'm a member of a reform synagogue and I sometimes bemoan the lack of participation or people don't show up on Friday night. And I believe that the Orthodox are the only ones who are getting it right. Um, we can get back to the youth and, and how they're they're feeling lost right now. What do we do to address that? But I just think specifically from a Jewish standpoint. The idea of keeping the Sabbath and being with your family and showing up for all these holidays is just built into the DNA. And I think the kids just see that and know that. And you're much less likely to marry a non-Jew if you've, if you've grown up with that. And I'm sad about the loss of commitment in marriage for young people. You know, I've got two older children who are both dating non-Jews and it really breaks my heart. So, I mean, I'm trying to get back to what you were saying about our young people being lost. So just on a secular way, I think to have it come out you from both ends where you have a government that is confusing, you have messages that are confusing, you you don't have a moral guidance in the White House, and then you don't have your elders from a religious standpoint to, to combat that. And so then you get these lost souls. And I think what I do see, though, in the youth of today is a lot of desire to participate like in environmental change and climate change activism, let's say, or even the BLM movement. I think that is fueling young people because they want something to believe in. I mean, climate change is not necessarily a belief. It's a fact. It's a scientific fact. But it's they are scared and they are passionate about this. So maybe those are the new modern religions for some of our young people. Religion never goes away. It just gets sublimated into other things. Yeah. You know, when I think about your book, I see it as prompting a really interesting way to think about parenting, right? Because it's so trendy today to tell kids, be yourself and find yourself. You have no prior or previous attachments. You go discover what's meaningful and do that. 
But in your book, the message to the young person, Isabel, who's the hero of the book, is actually be part of something larger than yourself, right? Be part of a tradition. And are we missing that in contemporary parenting when we tell kids, be yourself? I mean, is th- that could be scary, right? If you're not part of something large, you have to figure everything out for yourself. I agree. I think autonomy only goes so far. I think you really, um, I think kids, kids need boundaries. They need to feel safe. Um, and that's good parenting is making sure your kids know how you feel about things. My kids may or may not obey, but they definitely can repeat exactly my opinions. And I think that is all I, need I can some, do. I need some tips. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right that Isabel, um, you know, back then it was all about belonging. It was the safety of the majority. The crown and the church was the majority. And then when when Isabel is exploring her own Judaism and, and study Talmud and, and learn about all that, on a micro level, she's ass- asserting herself but like you're pointing out, she is joining this 3,500 at that time year old garden that's been growing and of Judaism and she doesn't want it to die on her watch. It shouldn't die on her watch. So I don't know. I think, I think today you're right. It's such a, it's such a, a mixed thing about being yourself and being and, and expressing yourself and dressing the way you want and being your, the gender that you're choosing. But then what about what about the greater good? What about the greater, the greater spirit that we all need to join and be a part of? Um, so I think we battle that daily. So I guess as a last question, because, you know, what that makes me think of is there's, there's, you know, the Spanish Inquisition and the period that you're writing about is such a rich text. It's such a rich tapestry. And there's so much meaning that can be extracted from it. So You've clearly done so much research to create a story that's compelling and feels historically grounded. So what's one piece of the research that you did on the Spanish Inquisition that maybe didn't make it into the book, but that you wish you had time to explore? Hmm. Uh, well, a couple of things. One, I, I didn't want to put this in because I wanted the Jews to be regarded in a good light, but there was <laughs> polygamy going on back then. And I thought that was really intriguing polygamy as, as recent as, you know, the 1400s and 1500s, you know, I thought I knew it was biblical, but I didn't know it was moving on to other centuries. So I was very shocked by that. I did not put that in. Another thing that I put in, in what was called the epilogue, where I, I show what happens throughout, throughout different generations to modern day was a moment where Jews would always look for the three stars in the sky to symbolize Havdalah and the Sabbath is complete. And back then, if you went outside to point at the stars, that was a a signal to the inquisitors that you were Jewish. So everyone was told never point to the sky. And a friend of mine who's a Sephardic Jewish woman whose grandmother grew up in Israel used to say to her, you know, she would take her hand and push it down whenever she pointed to the sky. And, and she never understood wow. until recently why. And I just love that. And I want, it just took too long to explain in the book. So I put it at the very end in this epilogue. Um, but I was fascinated by what remained, by what, what Christian families like in New Mexico are doing today. And they're, they don't understand why they do it, why they light a candle on Friday night. So wow. that blew my mind. I just couldn't put it all in. And our past is always a part of us. Our past is always a part of us. And I love the 23 in me. I love DNA. I love 
knowing about connections and where we came from. And hopefully I, I communicated that in the book. I just want to mention one more thing. You men- you talked about um, Nachmanides and he is in the book briefly because this, Ooh, this thing right, called- Spanish Dis- Provence, sure. Exactly. Well, he- um, he did live in Spain. Um, in Catalonia, right? Yeah. So in Barcelona was this, um, it was in Tortosa, actually. It was called the Disputation at Tortosa. And it was a debate of um, between the Christians and the, and the Jewish leaders as to whether or not the Messiah existed or had come already. And by all accounts, he was considered the winner of that debate because he said, you know, the Messiah is not here yet. And he proved it. And the Christian clerics were so distressed by him winning this debate that they stopped the debate. They wouldn't even continue it. And it was just, I I just love him. I love his brain. I love the fact that he defended it so well. Um, But also the fact that he had to defend it is is also shocking. I mean, it's so fascinating because, and this is something I think about often, you know, 1492 is such a fascinating year because it is both the year in which, if you're looking at it in the moment, it seems like the end for the Jewish people. I mean, they were expelled from Spain of all places. I mean, when you think back to the great eras of Jewish history, I mean, Jewish historians talk about the golden age of Spain. And so you could think of it really as kind of an ending point in Jewish history. And yet at the same time, it's also when the new world is discovered, uh, Jewish life has found an incredible foothold in America and American Jewry has seen, you know, untold flourishing of Jewish life, literature and culture. And, you know, with the growth of the state of Israel, American Jewish life has, has been augmented because of that. And you can kind of look back on 1492 in hindsight and say it actually was not just the end of a chapter, it was the beginning of a new chapter. And I feel like, you know, especially given the time that we're in, where it it's, it does often feel, whether from a pandemic perspective, public health perspective, or a, a civic health perspective, it often feels sort of like the end of things right now. And, you know, I, I suppose thinking about your book, one of the reasons why a story like this is so important now is because I think it can remind us that that if we if we recover our traditions, our sense of renewed purpose, this could perhaps also be the beginning of things as well. I mean, that, it seems to me that's why the period you're studying and writing about is, is so important. Well, you know, in some ways, the Inquisition began the diaspora, um, which, I mean, not began, obviously, the, the fall of Babylon really began it, but that became the modern day diaspora and our strength in, in how we dispersed in all these different countries. And that was not a coming together. That was a, a disbursement. And now I think with COVID and with us retracting, and becoming more internal and meditative and and we're in our homes and we have a lot of time to think, it's totally the opposite of the spreading. Um, So maybe, maybe now when we come out of this, we can join together again. I mean, I have hope that that will happen. Anyway, I'm just trying to connect it to the Inquisition and where we are today. And I don't know what's going to (laughs) be after all this, but I I have hope that the lessons um, we've learned now in isolation will carry us when we're back together as community. Amen. Cambria, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ari. It's a pretty scary time in American life. There are no two ways around it. We're physically, emotionally, and probably even spiritually sick. We're living in an exile, a captivity of our own making. If we want to escape, 
If we want to truly be redeemed as an American society, it'll only be by remembering those classical values and, yes, those biblical promises that so enthralled our founders that make us not merely great, but good. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.